0: So at this time, brethren, we're blessed to have our sermon for today, brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled Anxieties of the Heart. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone today, as it always is, blessed by this great music that we had today. So as Matt just said, uh, the title of this message today is Anxieties of the Heart. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, whenever I spoke last, uh, I talked about, uh, well, we looked at Matthew the 6th chapter, uh, verses 18 to 24, and Jesus is talking, in that section, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about materialism, he's talking about accumulating you know, treasures, on this Earth, and we talked about the problems uh, of doing that, and how we need to focus on treasures of heaven and building up our treasures in heaven. Right after this and as I'm basically continuing on, right after this string of passages that we talked about last time, the treasure of heaven, Jesus starts talking about another issue that human beings, that seems to be another universal human issue. And that is the issue of worrying. Now, I think everyone in here can relate to this psychological feeling of worry. Raise your hand if you've ever worried before. Everyone in here. And I I will say that this message is probably more for me than anyone in here. Because I've been known to be a little bit of a a worrier. I've had my share of worrying in, in this this life here. As I was preparing this message, I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting just to go out there online, just kind of Google up, you know, what's the biggest things that people worry about? What what makes people anxious? And there's all different kinds of things that I stumbled across, but one in particular, which I think is a little strange, I think some of them are kind of funny, but this was the top 10 fears of 2016. The USA Today put this out in 2016. And I'll just go on down the list. And and now we're in 2018. And we can just think about, you know, these are both fears that they have of things going on in the world and also personal fears. But number one was corruption of government officials. 2016, right before the election of 2016, I mean, nothing's really changed, right? It was also, there's a note here, same for, it was the same top fear in 2015 as well. The second one was terrorist attacks. This was actually the, uh, the, the top uh, ten fears of Americans, by the way. This wasn't you know, a study that was done to people living all over the world. So the second one was terrorist attacks. The third one, which I think a lot of us can relate to, maybe you could relate to obviously the first two, but the third one was not having enough money for the future. I think that this is pretty A pretty common fear. I think this is a pretty common anxiety that people have and worry about. You know, did I save enough? Is my retirement going to be there? What's going to happen to Social Security whenever I get to be the age of 62 to 65? However you work it. Number four, being a victim of terror. Number five, government restrictions on firearms and ammunition. That was number five on the list in 2016 of things that Americans fear the most. Number six, people I love dying. Many parents in here, right? Raise your hand if you worry about your kids. Okay. Raise your hand if you have a kid that's over 30 or 40 years old and you still worry about them. I don't think it changes, really, does it? I mean, that's, it doesn't seem like it changes because I'm 34. I can tell you, my mom and my dad, for good reasons probably, worry about me. Number seven, economic or financial collapse. Number eight, identity theft, which was an interesting one, which in this technological age that we, that we live in, this is, is a big fear. People have all kinds of devices that they can get your information with. Number nine, people I love becoming seriously ill. And number ten, of course, this had to be on there, the Affordable Health Care Act, Obamacare. So this this was the top ten list of things in 2016. The top ten things that Americans worried about. And of course, I'm sure that there was a a survey, questions, probably very politically driven. Uh, But I just thought to myself, what do people worry about? I think we can all kind of relate to many of these things. People worry about all kinds of things. And sometimes I think that worrying can be like a habit. I think sometimes we can actually get into such a habit of being... Into, into worrying that we don't even know what we're worrying about anymore. It's just, it's just a, it's a frame of mind. It's just the way we live our life. And so there seems to be, in this day and age, I think that every era could probably say the same thing, there's a lot of crazy things that are going on in the world. You know, there's economic uncertainty, there's political discouragement, There's world unrest. There's things going on all over the world. There's things going on right in our backyard right now. There's people that probably worry about some of the results of this past week's election. And some of the potential implications that maybe that could bring. There's a lot of worry in this world. And in particular, there's many different things that we all can relate to. Because we're all personal individuals. We all have different experiences. And so what you worry about might be a little bit different than what I worry about. Let me just be clear. This message is not to condemn us for worrying. Jesus has some strong words for us about not worrying. But we understand that human nature, it's hard sometimes not to worry. We just read the prayer requests. Unfortunately in this life, things, bad things happen. Doesn't mean that God's not in control. But we do know that things happen that are out of our control and that are tragic. But still, God tells us to live our life not worrying about our future as far as what we eat, what we drink. We're going to see that, but we focus on God. And so we're going to get to that. So we're going to start in Matthew, the sixth chapter. We're going to pick it up on that Sermon on the Mount. Okay, We looked at what Jesus had to say about materialism we looked about what jesus had to say about trying to serve god and Mammon at the same time and about how we in this world as human beings we have this tendency of trying to accumulate things stuff and then jesus goes in which completely aligns with that idea of trying to accumulate things what's at the heart what's at the core of why people get into materialism One of the reasons why I identified last time was because it makes them feel better, like they're in control, like bad things aren't going to happen to them. One of the biggest things that people worry about today, as well as back then, was being able to simply have enough. Have enough. And when people accumulate things, it makes them feel somehow that they have enough. They don't have to worry. And so Jesus, in verse 25 of Matthew, the sixth chapter, says this, Therefore, meaning... And so right here, Jesus has one basic theme, one basic statement, one basic uh, sentiment that He's trying to get across. Stop worrying. God will provide. You worry about your life. You worry about what you're going to eat. You worry if you're going to have enough clothing. What you're going to drink. You worry about your bodies. The essentials of life. You see, back in these days... Just like it is today, these are essentials of life. But most people didn't really have anything beyond the essentials of life. One tunic, one piece of clothing that is. Just enough to get by, to eat, to not starve to death. Today we have surplus. We have more than one things oftentimes. Not all of us, there's still poverty that exists in this world, of course. But Jesus is essentially saying, look, God's provided you a body, he's provided you life, which are more important, obviously, than food or drink or clothing, don't you think that if he provides you a day, if he provides you this life, if he provides you that body, that he's going to provide for, that he's going to give you the essentials that you need to keep that body going. And Jesus appeals to two specific illustrations from nature. And we've all read this before. Much of this is very basic, but I think it's really important as we will get into in this message. The first one is the birds of the air. Let's just think about that. The birds of the air. How do birds eat? Well, they eat in a lot of different ways. I'm sure I'm not an expert on birds, but I know that they're not farming. They're not going out there and and planting seeds and making sure that You know, that their seeds are being uh, watered and and then they go back and harvest. They're not doing any of that. Do they hunt? Do they search? Of course they do. But just consider the bird, birds of the air. Something that's not nearly as important as you. They don't do nearly the amount of things that you do to try to prepare yourself and make sure that you are planning and and doing the work that you need to do to, to be able to have sustenance the essentials of life. But God still, of course, provides for them. The lilies of the field. Jesus gives this analogy. Look at the lilies of the field. The flowers. You know, We don't know exactly what type of flower that is specifically being spoken about. But what we do know is something as mundane as just a field of weeds just randomly have flowers sometimes in them. And in fact, Jesus says that those lilies in all of Solomon's glory He was not as glorious, or his glory was not nearly as renowned as those. So we see that Jesus is giving us these two analogies from nature. He's going from lesser to greater. He's saying, look at what God provides. He provides provision for these small things in this world. And you, as Doyle just talked about, you are an inheritor. You are are an heir to the promises of God. Don't you think that he's going to provide for you? So Jesus is essentially saying worry is pointless, specifically in these mundane things. And in fact, we know that worrying doesn't add, as Jesus says, it's to add one cubit to your life. And a cubit can be inches, but it also can be time. Does it give you a couple more birthdays, a couple more years? No, it doesn't. In fact, we know that worrying, more than anything, would probably lessen your life than it would add to your life. I want to look at this illustration of the children of Israel. Before I do that, I also want to kind of put a little disclaimer. Jesus is not saying don't take any provisions whatsoever in life. He's not saying just wake up and just open your mouth up and wait for God to basically throw in a worm. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't take the necessary precautions. He's not saying that when your child's playing by a highway, get them away from the highway. You know, don't worry about them. That's not what he's saying, obviously. It takes a little common sense. I think all of us, everyone in here has, we know that God in other parts of the Bible tells us we need to work, that we do need a plan, uh, that we need to have concern for things. Like, for example, if your doctor tells you that your blood pressure, is like twice the amount it should be, you should be concerned about that and do the necessary precautions to try to get that down. Start eating better, exercise, whatever that, that may, may entail. So, in other words, Jesus is not saying that you just have no concern whatsoever for your life and the problems in it. But rather, he's saying, don't sit around and just be worrying about these mundane things in life. God's going to provide for you. But let's go to Exodus, the third chapter, to a very, very popular little story here. By a very, very popular individual by the name of Moses. I've always, always... uh, love this story even when i was a kid and i think that pixar or disney one of the two whoever made the prince of egypt i think kind of helped give me some imagery in my head uh, there was a movie out uh many years ago it was an animated movie and uh you know obviously whether or not it was 100 percent to the bible i think it was really good during this part but this it's always stuck out to me uh this passage of when Moses was called to, to free the Israelites out of Egypt. And in the story as we see in Exodus the third chapter. Moses, we know the story. He's, he's this individual living among the Egyptians. He's not enslaved like his brethren. He ends up leaving Egypt. He kills an Egyptian. He starts to feel a, a connection to his Israeli brethren or his uh, Israel, fellow Israelites. And in this burning bush, I mean, it's one of the first big stories. I mean, it's one of the, you know, one of the top five when you're a kid, right? And you talk about you know, Noah and the Ark, you talk about the burning bush, uh, you know, Jonah and the well. I mean, those are like you know, the, the, the top five highlight reel for, for infants and kids you know, when it comes to, to Bible stories. But in this movie, it was just such a powerful scene, uh, how it just de- depicted this particular story. It was just a cartoon, but it really made me think. I mean, I, you know how you read the Bible sometimes? And sometimes, it, you know, you can see it in a different light, and it kind of adds a, a different dimension to it. Like, you didn't think about it in the way in which whenever you just read it. But in this particular story, in Exodus third chapter, it says, "In the Lord, this is verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people, Who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up from the land to a good and large land. To a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people and children of Israel out of Egypt. We've all read this story. What's interesting about this story is Moses' response. Let's just think about that response. How does Moses respond to this God that he's being introduced to that he's probably heard about. But God is directly talking to him. And saying hey you see. You haven't been there in a long time. You were there. This is your brother. I'm sending you. Moses doesn't say hey cool. Yeah I'm, I'm excited about this. Moses is like whoa 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 hold on. And he has all of these. Different reasons why God. You've not chosen the right person. Let me, let me tell you. You don't want me. He has this immediate sense of inadequacy. In fact, a little bit later in chapter 4, or or right after this, Moses literally says, who am I to go to Pharaoh? Who am I to go and do this? You don't want me. What if they don't believe me? What if they just say that I, you know, this guy that hadn't been here in a long time, and he shows up to Egypt and says to Pharaoh, hey, this God... Of these slaves... He he showed up to me. He says, you need to let the people go. He says, what if they don't believe me? And every single time God gives him... A nice response... To how I will ensure... That they will believe you. And in fact, in this time... The sign of the rod... The sign of hand-turning leprous... We know in the story his hand turns leprous... He shows them... What he would do... And how he would be able to prove to the Egyptians... And I like the last one. One of the last objections that Moses has. He says, I can't speak. I'm slow of tongue, as he puts it. I'm going to get up there, and I'm going to be stumbling and fumbling around. You're telling me something? I'm like, man, I can't even remember all this. I'm just going to be stuttering all over, all over myself. I, 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 I'm not the right person, God. This is the part that I loved in this story. God looks at him. And he says, who made man? Who made the deaf? Who made the the mute, the blind? Everything here. Did not I make them? I'm the creator of every single thing on this planet, including you. Your IQ, your intelligence, your ability to reason. Don't you think that I have the ability to give you the necessary skills, tools, resources to be able to do the job that I'm sending you to do. It's a powerful part. It's a powerful little you know, snippet of the biblical narrative where God basically says you don't get it. I, I've created everything. Everything that you see in this universe I've created. And I can do all of this. I can, provi- I can make the weak strong. And I can put, as we all know, the, the, the biblical sentiment, I can, put to, I can put down the strong by the weak. Very, 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 very powerful story in the biblical narrative. God met every objection in Moses' story with the assurance that he would provide. And it's the same for us. Let's go to another little story. We, a lot of this I think we kind of have went over in our faith series or our, our Path to Pentecost series. We're talking about faith. You know, talking about the children of Israel, and we're looking at the backdrop of the apostles. Let's go to Exodus, the 16th chapter. We all know the story. Moses ends up going to Egypt. He ends up going to Egypt. He ends up, you know, after many plagues are brought upon Egypt because they're stubborn. He brings them out of Egypt. God's, you know, they've witnessed all these different miracles. The ten plagues, parting of the Red Sea, the cloud by day, and the pillar by by night, in Exodus, the 16th chapter, verse 1 through 5, even though that God has provided all of these things, even though that God has continually shown the children of Israel that he would not leave them, that he would continually provide for them, they still lost their faith in Exodus 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between El- Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Some pretty strong words that the children of Israel were saying to the Lord God Almighty. What do we see? Eventually happens. In verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And out shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, And it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. God provided their need. Even though the children of Israel lacked faith, God continually supplied what they needed. And this is a very important story for us. You know, some people say, well, that's just the Old Testament. That's not how God, you know, know, that God was always around back then. He was popping up here and there, and people saw him. He had... You know, you had burning bushes and you had uh, you know Red Sea's part and things like that. First Corinthians the tenth chapter though tells us something really important. We've all read this before. First Corinthians ten. It says, moreover, brethren, this is this is Paul. I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them. God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. We all have heard this story before. These things were written for our admonition. They were written for us. So we could understand. The things that the Israelites went through. And how. Although we're in a different circumstance, we live in a much different age, we might not specifically be in a wilderness, but spiritually we kind of are. We're walking on this earth, and there's things that come up. There's times where we come up short in certain areas, and we need some help. And we can learn from the events that they went through, their lack of faith, their disobedience, and just essentially the example of the Israelites. That despite their disobedience, despite... You know, how much of a stiff-necked people they were, God continually, continually provided for them. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 6. One of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. 2 Kings verse 6. This story about this individual by the name of Elisha. And it's kind of an interesting story because I can just imagine how frustrating... The king of Syria, or Aram, as it was called back then, modern day Syria. It's just interesting to, to, to be able to go back in time and just to see how frustrating this king must have been getting. Because you see, what essentially was happening was, is that the king of Syria and the Syrians, the Aramites, they were fighting against the northern tribes of Israel, the kingdom of, of Israel. And they were wanting to do surprise attacks. Well, you had this guy by the name of Elisha, God's prophet, that would basically tell the king of Israel at the time, which was Jehoram, whenever the Assyrians were coming. And so in the mind of the king of Syria, he's thinking, "There there must be a spy in my army, in my military, among me. What's going on here? Every time we try to attack Israel... They're ready for it. How in the world do they know this? In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, it says, and I'm reading out of the uh, New Living Translation for this passage. So it might be a little bit different. It says, when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel. Do not get, go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. I can imagine just exactly what this Syrian king was going through. Every single time he sends his army... To go and attack a place. Here's Israel with their defense forces ready. And he probably knows they don't have this many troops... ...that they're just defending every single city... ...that you know, is in the northern kingdom. So he's thinking, you know, what's going on here? Verse, verse 11. So the king of Aram became very upset over this... ...and he called his officers together and demanded... ...which of you is the traitor? Who has been, who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans... It's not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet Israel, he tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. This is before modern technology. You know, you couldn't bug a king. You know, you couldn't, couldn't have recorders or anything like that. But just by God's providence, God's, you know, delivering the message to Elisha, giving him Understanding. Verse 13, go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. He's wanting to get Elijah out of the equation. He's thinking, this Elisha guy, he's got to go. He's, you know, messing up all of my plans. And the report came back to Elisha is at Dothan. It's interesting because one of the parts of the story that it's like, does the king ever think about this? If, 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 if Elisha knows where you're going to attack Israel... He's probably going to know that you're coming for him. It's an interesting little, you know, dichotomy there about how, like, somehow, I guess there was a little lapse in the the judgment of this king. But anyways, he says, go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back. He's in Dothan. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, that is, got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, chariots everywhere, and he says, oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. So you have Elisha, and here he has a servant. You know, we can call him a poor servant, because, you know, obviously he doesn't have quite the insight that Elisha has. And he wakes up, and he probably just goes out, and he's thinking, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? We're in trouble. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So uh, we got some problems Elisha. Elisha didn't flinch at this. Verse 16. Don't be afraid Elisha told him. For there are more on our side than on theirs. This is when the story gets good. Because I'm sure the servant must have been like. Right before Elisha prays you know, that he can see. But he, he's probably looking around like, Elisha, are you, are you, are you, did you, have you not fully woken up yet? I mean, you see, you see all these troops and these chariots. I mean, what are you talking about? There's more of us than them. Look at what, are you seeing what I'm seeing? He's probably thinking, uh, I don't know about that, Elisha. But verse 17, then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened up the young man's eyes and when he looked up he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing that? I mean that would be that right there. We'll get to that but that you know I'm sure that it was frightening seeing you know what he saw at the beginning but seeing what he was able to see by Elisha's prayer must have been something else verse 18 as the Aramean army advanced toward him Elisha prayed "O lord please make them blind so the lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked Then Elisha went out and told them you have come the wrong way this isn't the right city follow me and I'll take you to the man you're looking for and he led to led them to the city of Samaria so, uh, that must have been, I mean, it, there's a lot of implications here, though. I mean, uh, at the end, these, these guys were probably the most thankful at the end. But verse 20, as soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. You know, the capital of Israel. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Verse 22, of course not. Elisha replied, do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. And after that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. I'm sure they did. But there's a lot of implications here. The first implication is simple. God is there fighting for us. And our battles, even when we don't realize it. You know, we may feel alone. We don't know what's going on. There's little stories like this all throughout the Bible. We can look at the story in Daniel. There's many different things. There's a spirit world going on. And there's activity around us all the time, even when we don't realize it. And there are spiritual battles being fought. There are things that we don't understand. That's not in our physical sight, in our physical vision that we, can, that we can look upon and see. But just know this, just because we don't think that God's hearing us or that God's involved. We, we think that we're, you know, we, we're alone. And, and let me just put it this way. Many of us probably don't have the problem of waking up and seeing armies out, outside of our house trying to get in. We have other problems. That are in a lot of ways the same way we have issues that we're dealing with. They're personal issues sometimes, uh, family issues, issues at work. Sometimes we're having to fight. You know, obviously thoughts. You know, Satan's trying to get to us. There's all different kinds of things that is a challenge to us. But nevertheless, God's there, ready to fight for us. God's there, ready to fight for us. You know, it's interesting. Because I mentioned this a few minutes ago, sometimes people they get in the habit of thinking, "Well, yeah, but you know, God's always showing up back then in the Old Testament." You know, this is this is the 21st century. You know, I mean, this is things like that don't happen anymore. Okay, well, that might be true to an extent, or for some of us, but the New Testament teaches us that we have the better lot, that we're actually living in the better age. That we've been given the opportunity to see things that many prophets had longed to be able to see. Let's go to John the first chapter. We've all read this little passage before. This little hymn. This little prologue. This little opening of John's gospel. Very different from the other three gospels. But it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, that is packed full with theological implications. We can analyze that. There's been, I mean, there's been so many things written on this passage, in this string of passages. If you skip down to verse 14, there's something that's really interesting. Because John's trying to get at something here. More than just, you know, the, you know, the, the different ways that you know, the, the Logos works and all that stuff. He gets into verse 14 and he says something very, very important. Something that a, that, that a contemporary Jewish reader during that time would immediately understand in a little bit different way than maybe a casual 21st century reader would. But he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that key word that he uses is that word dwelt. Some translations have to pitch a tent, to pitch a a, a tabernacle. And if you were a, a, a Jewish person living in this time period, immediately your brain would understand that this is hearkening back to Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. When, God beheld, when they beheld God's glory from afar off. Because every Jew during this time would understand that that word dwelt, that word you know, tabernacle, pitch, pitching a tent, would immediately throw their mind back to their heritage of what they had always learned growing up, reading Torah and all that stuff, reading about you know, how God followed and, and looked over the Israelites in a cloud by day and a pillar by night. And and. You know, the stories about God coming down and consecrating uh, the tabernacle with smoke and fire. And, and God delivering his message from the mountain through Moses. All of this was always done though from afar off. Not just face to face. And right here we're learning. John's telling us. Now God has come to us in a much more personal way. Than our forefathers. Than our, than our, you know, our ancestors got to experience through Jesus Christ. Through a man, Jesus Christ. God incarnate. God has pitched his tent. And we don't have to wait anymore. You know, Moses, what does God say about this? Or let's look for God's, God's judge and ask him, well, what's God say about this? Or what about God's prophet? You know, is there any word from the Lord? A lot of times in Israel's days, that's how they would have to do it. You read the Old Testament... You know, you see, you know, those days, you know, there was no word from God. Or you'd have to go to a prophet and things like that to learn about what God had to say about this. Not anymore. Now God has come to us in a much more personal way. Through the person of Jesus Christ. Who dwelt among the disciples face to face and dwells among us today. Through God's spirit. And we all understand this. God provides for us, and specifically, He doesn't just provide for us, but actually He experiences it with us. He lives within us. John six chapter, uh, John chapter six, verse thirty-five says, and Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." And likewise, a little few passages before that, John four verse thirteen. You can write those down. I wasn't really intending for you to actually go to them. You can if you want. But it says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Everlasting life. So as we come full circle looking at this passage specifically, what Jesus has to say about worrying. And we looked at some of those examples. Example of Moses, the children of Israel, Elisha, and his servants, and, and, and the Syrians coming down on, on the northern kingdom of Israel. I just want to reread verses 31 and 34 of Matthew 5. It says, therefore do not worry, Jesus says, saying that you, know, you shouldn't go around saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. I think it's an interesting little passage there. Because we don't necessarily go around thinking of people as Gentiles today. In this context, it would make sense. Today, we would say, you know, maybe unbelievers. It would be kind of an equivalent to a Gentile to us. The people who don't have God, people who do not believe in God. Those who don't have God do not seek much things beyond the physical, material needs of this life. Because their eyes are not fixed upon the future Upon what our allotment is next. That we are inheritors. That we are heirs. Let's just think about that. Do we live our life as if this is all there is? Do we live our life worrying about all of these mundane things. To, to the point that it consumes us. That we really not, never get to, to, to the point of where God wants us to really focus. Which is right after verse 34. Or verse 32 he says. And verse 33 he says. But seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Suff- sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, that's true. Each day brings its own challenges. It does. Living in this world, focusing on God, focusing on the kingdom of God and his righteousness, It's something that is a day-in, day-out obligation, correct? But it's also something that we have to take day by day. You know, it's funny because we live in this life and we are physical human beings. We are subject to having food, having enough drink, you know, having to be able to stay alive. But we're also subject to the other things like oxygen. Uh, as well as a host of other things, and it's interesting because we can sit around and worry about all of these different things and look down at the future. Well, am I going to have enough money whenever I retire? Or am I, you know, is this going to happen to me when I get older? You know, my, you know, my dad had a heart attack, and you know, he, we, heart heart conditions are in our family. You know, of course, we need to take those things seriously and understand that you know, you know, maybe we need to live a better lifestyle as far as the way we eat and the way we exercise and things like that but sometimes we get so wrapped up in these things that you know we don't think about what Jesus is telling us to think hey worry about what's going on today you might not even be breathing tomorrow and that's not that's not to say that in a in a way that makes us you know scare anything like that but we know that things in this life happen and God wants for us what's best and he's sovereign and nothing's going to happen to us that's not of his will but What's more important is, what do you focus on today? What you ate for breakfast? What you're going to have for dinner? What you're going to wear? Or if you're going to have clothing? Or your retirement? Or are you focused on the kingdom of God? Because you can't focus on those things more than you can focus on the kingdom of God. And think that you're going to be doing your part to try to be a light to the world. To reflect Jesus Christ. Of course, we're never going to meet... The standard of Jesus Christ. And his righteousness. But when we seek Jesus. When we seek the kingdom. We're going to be living out a life that's much more righteous. Because that's what's going to be at the forefront of our minds. That's what's going to be in our desires. That's what's going to take. I mean think about this. What if we took all the energy. All of the energy. That we use worrying about things. And we took that energy. And let me tell you. We all know. We can spend a lot of time worrying about things, okay? Uh, we all could probably attest to that. And sometimes it takes a lot of energy and it can exhaust us. But what if we took that energy and put it towards our focus for the kingdom? All the energy that we use worrying about something and put it towards something else that's going to advance us in our spiritual life. Like our focus on Jesus, our focus on the kingdom, our focus on being an example to this world. It's a, it's a tough concept to think about. But we have 24 hours in a day, and we have decisions to make. What are we going to focus on in that 24 hours? We have regular obligations. We have work. We have kids. We have family. But in our mind, what's our focus? What are we thinking about? How are we spending our day? You know, are we spending our day researching or Googling? You know, you know do I have, Am I? You know, is this a heart attack symptom? Or something like that? Because, you know, doing the, 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 the Dr. Google thing, you know, like we do sometimes? Or are we focusing on, on God? Are we putting the energy on putting our cares to God? It's a tough concept. I think all of us have to work on it on a daily basis. So as we look at these passages, I think this passage essentially sums up essentially what Jesus is telling us not to worry. God's going to provide for us. He's not just going to provide for our food, our water, our clothing. But he'll provide for us in other ways in life. Whether it be a job. Whether it be uh, our mental well-being. Whether it be our peace of mind. God cares about those things. He doesn't just care about us you know, being able to be breathing individuals. And that we're still alive. He cares about those other things that are very important to us. That that you know, make us who we are and give us the ability to do the things that God wants us to do. So, as we wrap it up today and we're looking at these things, these little elementary things in this life that God provides for us, if He provides these small things, He's going to provide for the big things. So as we go about this week, I want us to think about these things because I think that this world that we live in There's a lot of pools to have anxieties. There's a lot of things that we go through. Everyone in here is a different person. And we all have a different story. But we need to understand this now because we don't know what's around the corner. As far as, you know, know, stuff could happen to us uh, financially. Uh, Stuff could happen to us uh, in other ways, health-wise. But we can't worry about this thing. But we have to understand, as so many of the songs that we sing in here, uh, to cast our cares upon God, and, you know, to, to, to think about those anxieties of the heart. My anxieties is different from your anxieties and vice versa, obviously. So let's just, as we go about this week, I'd really like to encourage us, as we live in this world and we see all the different things going on, to think about you know, where is our heart? Do we focus on seeking the kingdom of God or do we focus on those mundane things in life? Because Jesus says that focus on the kingdom and his righteousness and all of those other things will take care of themselves.